Daily Maverick Show on cliffcentral.com. Stay informed and up to date. It's the Daily Maverick Show, Tuesdays, 1 to 2 p.m. on cliffcentral.com. Good afternoon. You're tuned into the Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. My name is Kingsley Kipuri. As usual, I'm going to be your host for the next hour. I'm joined in studio by my partner in crime, Greg Nicholson. Good to have you on board as always. Great to be here. And Fatima on social media. Fatima, how's it going? Great. Fantastic. Um, we've got a pretty interesting show lined up. We'll be joined by Koketso from Amantla.mobi. Um, Koketso, I'm, I'm just really curious before we, before we get started. What is Amantla.mobi? Amantla.mobi is a community advocacy organization that is working to mobilize those most affected by injustice to take action on issues affecting their lives. And we do this by running mobile, multilingual, and multi-issue campaigns. Wow, that's a lot of, that's a lot <laughs> of, that's, right. that's a lot of words. Okay. Could you describe to us some of your, or at least maybe perhaps one of your campaigns so we sort of understand how you break, you know, once you break it down, how it works? So, um, we use various mobile channels, um, whether USSD, SMS, please call me, and even miss calls. So essentially what would happen is a campaign like the R5s, having police banned from using their R5s in crowd control. We run the campaign. We dis- we release the campaign in different languages to ensure that people can actually mm-hmm. engage. Because what often happens is that People are excluded by virtue of language. The, one of the biggest barriers in South Africa is actually English literacy. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you're trying to get the word out in as many languages as possible with what aim? So you, you're translating, you're making sure that it's on SMS, it's on please call me. But what, what is the end game for somebody like me now that I can understand what uh, the material that you've put out? So the aim is to ensure that people are mobilized in numbers that incentivize accountability. Okay. Because what often happens is if you're in a community somewhere, you don't have water, for example. It is an issue affecting your life, but you are unable. When you're a single person, you are unable to connect with others whom this is also affecting. So the idea is by using this, a number of people can join and say the same thing. And the what Whatever they have joined is taken to a decision maker. Yeah. Okay, so the aim is to put pressure, sort of put pressure on yeah. people. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I'm curious about the 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 work you've been doing, especially post Marikana. So I've seen a lot. Um, there was a there was a campaign around communicating with some of the widows and families of the of the fallen miners. There's a campaign to to attend an event, and there was a whole um, move to find the event closest to you. And actually attend a local event so that everybody around the country could be part of this. And most recently, what you've just mentioned is the R5s. So it seems like Marikana has really been, or rather post-Marikana has really been a big focus of the of the work you're doing on the activism front. It has been. Um, on many levels, Marikana is a microcosm of South African society in that a lot of things going wrong more broadly outside of Marikana are visible there. The failure of local government, the exploitation of black labor, housing issues. It's just, it captures so many things that are affecting broader South Africa all in one. Um, this year's anniversary was particularly significant. It's the third year and it was the third year anniversary, but also it was the first anniversary commemorated following the release of the Fallen Commission report. I mean, you're right. There was a feeling that it wasn't, there was no, some, somewhat closed. Before we had the report, there was a feeling that sort of the matter wasn't, I don't know, closed in some way. So I feel like once the report came out, I feel like perhaps the, the anniversary had a, 
a greater feeling of like okay we we now have a full understanding of 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 what happened and not only that i think because in many ways the report was very it was quite lacking you know and even though it's been released justice for the families affected has still not yet been found so what does it mean in many ways the farm commission it when it was running it kept marikana on the agenda but now that it's gone we can't just slip away and just move on you know because like i said it's a microcosm so if you're going to address things in broader south african society mm, mm. that is a good starting point mm. If you're just tuning in, the Daily Mavic show on Cliff Central. We're just starting off by talking to Koketsa Moeti from Amantla Don Mobi, um, and they're doing some great activism work. We're just about to jump into some of their work, uh, mobilizing around Marikana. Uh, now, Koketsa, you've mentioned that uh, Marikana raised so many issues, right, around housing, around migrant labor, um, around the role of sort of big capital versus these miners. So how do you how do you mobilize around such a complicated issue? What what do you direct people's attention to? What do you direct people's energies to? How do you educate um, somebody like me who wants to take action? Um, how do you sort of pinpoint um, a group of people towards specific issues when, as you've mentioned, there's so many issues that are coming together? I think it's easy to get stuck on, you know, the idea that it's a huge issue, mm, it's a massive mm, issue. What mm. is my role in it? Our role is to find things that can be changed, okay. you know. There are some concrete things that can be changed. Okay. So it would be things like um the illicit financial flow stuff. So What do you mean the illicit financial flow Lonman, stuff? Yeah. Lonman was found this was post Marikana, it should have been part of the Farm Commission, but a mm. lot of this was yeah, take, removed. And Lonman was found to have actually been able to afford a living wage for the miners, you know. But unfortunately, it was taking money out of the country through the use, of, the abuse of the transfer pricing mechanism and other ways. But also what this revealed in that investigation around what was going on were issues around housing, for example. The fact that Lonman was supposed to build 5,000 houses and only build three. These are all things that contributed. So it's in all of those big things, how do you find that one ask, those little asks that can together build up and change that whole, dismantle that mm. whole big cloud mm. floating over mm. us? Mm. I, that's actually one thing I really like about um, Amandlo.mobi is the that you find parts where you can take action, whereas you know it's easy for a lot of us to say... Um, people killed, you know, you can say that uh, people were murdered in Marikana, it shows the government is... Uh, oppressive, corrupt, or whatever, all these sort of things. You know, there's all these slogans and go with all sorts mm, of different issues mm. and, you know, and really yell about it and get angry about it and stuff. But really, and so often we don't have specific points to say, okay, sure, yeah, people were killed in Americana and stuff. What needs to be done so this doesn't happen again? And how can we organize to actually make that thing happen? I mean, you're right. It's easy to just feel disempowered and just be like, for this never to happen again, everything must change. Yeah. The mines must go That's away, right. the whole or, government must go away, yeah. the whole system must change completely. Or often I feel it's yeah. almost like a knee-jerk reaction in society to to jump, just go to the political straight away, just to jump on and say the ANC must go because, you know, because of, of matter kind of happened. And sure, you know, it might be a reason to change governments, it might not, depending on who you are, mm. but there's also other things to work in that you know, specific points. So even if we change to a economic freedom fighters government, democratic alliance government, some other party government, that doesn't mean that policing tactics will necessarily change. 
And that's the thing. That's, I think a lot of people miss that, you know, it's all about these changes. But if we keep changing things on top of what are already broken systems, we're just going to find ourselves keeping on replicating things like Marikana. And I mean, in the lead up to Marikana, um, there were quite a number of service delivery protests in the Northwest province. And I remember one, one was in my community and a young man was shot with a rubber bullet. Police wouldn't let the ambulance in. Mm. A bit further down, there was another one where a young boy was killed, trampled on by a nyala. And there was also the incident of the pregnant woman who was shot. So there's been all these mini Marikanas happening. So now we have this huge opportunity to say, Actually, no more, not just for Marikana, but for society at large. I mean, I love, I love, I mean, it's a terrible thing to say love, but I, th- I, I like rather that you pointed out this idea that there are many Marikanas. Um, I think it's easy to sometimes perhaps get lost in, in the big calamities and focus so much attention on that. And we forget that in a lot of communities, in a lot of protests, that, that, that people are dying in, you know, week in, week out, and it's sometimes easy to forget. It's like the issue of the R5 rifles, yeah. for example. And this is yeah. one of the really big campaigns that you're pushing. Yeah. Um, a lot of people know of them because they were used in Marikana. Mm. But actually, they've been deployed in so many places across the country. Mm. And often when... Um, in crowd control instances, there is a police, at least one police officer who is armed with the R5 rifle. So that really brought it to the fore. But it's like it did not happen. Marikana did not happen in a vacuum. I mean, I'm, I just want to center in on the R5s quickly. And um, so your campaign is around that, that, that really R5 should be discontinued in use and that they have no place in crowd control. Um, so I think my initial reaction to that is, you know, why this? Because surely the gun doesn't matter as much as the person holding it. So why, why the focus on the gun? I think, um, so I would respond and say, firstly, it is a war rifle. It is a war machine. And even in wars, we have rules about the use of proportionate force. Mm. So in terms of facing protesting people, people who are exercising a democratic right with the R5, that's no place. It's a violation of international policing standards and in many ways our own as well. But from the police's end, we know that our police are are ill-equipped to deal with crowd control. Even the Fallen Commission report found that. Mm -hmm. In what position are we pacing police officers when they are not trained to handle crowds, yet we give them weapons that are almost guaranteed deadly? Another thing about the R5 is that because of the distance the bullet travels, It puts bystanders also at risks and being used at close range. The bullet disintegrates within the body, disintegrates within the body. So individual police officers can't be held accountable. for murder. And that was a big, that was a big issue in the, in the sort of investigations post, you know, the is Ideally, you want to trace every bullet to every gun and be able to trace every gun to every police officer. But if it's disintegrated, then it becomes a bit tricky to identify who fired mm. what. Exactly. I think interesting about what Koketsu was mentioning about the travel of the R5 bullet. And I don't know if a lot of, a lot of people I'm sure don't know that one of the guys who died in Maracana on the 16th was killed a, hundred, a few hundred meters away from the, from the scene, you know, from, from the incident. It was, I think, Mr. Guelani, I think. So and he, he wasn't was, even part of like. No, it was, well, his uncle was part of, geez. part of the protest and he was going to take him lunch or coming back from taking him lunch or yeah. something like that. And just because, obviously, you know, you fire these high-powered rifles, the bullets go really, really far. This guy just happened to be walking a few hundred meters away in the background and got shot and died for a protest that he wasn't even really part of. And clearly, the question is then, you know, police say that they were using 
force and live ammunition for self defense mm, mm. you know can this can this guy's life be really said to have been lost because of you know because he posed a threat to the police of course not yeah i mean you know we we hope for what is it opposite and equal action but when you know the bystanders are getting sort of shot down just for being and the again same area. i think one of the things people fail to distinguish between is the carrying of weapons to murder but the carrying of traditional weapons for symbolic reasons we should also not forget that in in many protests there are a lot of traditional weapons that are carried but not necessarily to kill to maim to do all these mm. things yeah okay no I, i definitely hear you and and what of in i'm just thinking about the the regulatory standpoint so is it what then do we do if we're standing here and we've got these these documents and this research that you've put together that says these these weapons have no place in in policing it's against standards we have evidence for somebody who was killed a couple hundred meters away how then do we go around affecting the rules and policy and actually their use so what we did is we'll soon actually be going back to the minister because we had submitted as well as to the portfolio the policing portfolio committee um in Earlier this month, mm. yeah, they started their hearings on the implementation of the Farlem recommendations, okay. right? And even Parliament's own researchers found that policing should be done in a way, crowd control policing should be done in a way that minimizes bloodshed. So their own research validates, it affirms the campaign, so to speak. And um, we've emailed the portfolio committee members to also, because as our elected representatives, they have a duty to actually be listening to what we're saying. We would have, we were planning on the 26th, the minister was supposed to be briefing the committee and we were going to do a handover then, but the briefing was postponed and happened at a later time when we could not reach him. Yeah. But we have emailed them and we are awaiting an appointment. Okay. And what is their, what are you finding is their reception in general? Do they sound like they're open to hearing from you, meeting with you? Are they, are you a pest that sort of keeps coming and bringing up this thing? How, how, how do they receive you? I think it's, yeah. it's, it's not even just about how they receive us. It's about the issue at large, you know? So, I mean, the minister's talking about this panel that is going to sit for a year. He's talking about, the time frame of implementing he's essentially talking about 9 years now add that to the time that has passed right altogether are we saying that from marikana we will learn what almost 11 years Eleven, later at least, from it sounds like at least 11 yeah, years yeah 11 years later from it and i think what's also dis- what is also lost in all of this is that we did hear from the experts mm. during the farlem commission experts were there and they were clear they were unambiguous on their stance on the R5 yeah jeez and uh, but what 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 is supposed to be taking 9 years what what is the reason is it just legislative process and passing laws is it what is what is supposed <laughs> to be taking nine? <laughs> <I'm sorry. laughs> it's okay. that is not funny okay. <laughs> it's <laughs> you i don't even want to start on that but it's even just the whole this panel sitting for an entire year I mean in the context of people having lost breadwinners in the context of 300 million having been spent on the Farlem commission how much are we looking to spend how long it's it's almost like we are going to do something but be patient mm. yeah yeah it's just like a almost a delay tactic in my opinion to mm. be honest because yeah some things can be implemented right now actually and 
and with all these things, I think it's in terms of the delay tactics. You know, on on, on the one hand, the government works really slowly on a lot of stuff that it does. Mm. But on the other hand, so, you know, the Phylum report, uh, recommended both, um, a senior state advocates lead a team of sort of forensic investigators into looking about, at potential, uh, criminal charges to lay for both police and mm, sort of mine mm, workers mm. from, you know, from, from Maracana as well as appointing an independent pl- uh, panel of experts to sort of look at all of these different things to implement. And none of those panels that, I think, when, when did the report come out? In end of June, June 26th or something like that? Um, none of those panels are, have yet been set up. They say they're working on setting them up. They're waiting for key appointments and things like that. But you sort of think President Zuma had the Maracana report from, from, um, Justice Ian Farlam for three months, three I think, months, yeah. before he released it. Then he released it in June. Now we're sitting here, what, three months late, actually almost, almost to the day, yeah, three, three, three months later. And you, so he's, he's known those recommendations for six months now. And, and yet we can't get the the key basic recommendations of forming panels to investigate more in place. It's not even big big political decisions or something. We just should be able to say, okay, you know, we've known about these recommendations for a long time. We can set up these panels to investigate both, you know, both these recommendations on on the criminal and um, policing uh, transformation fronts. But that's not being done, or it's being done extremely slowly. And I think. What's what's also key to take from that is one of the things this panel will be looking at is the recommendation of first aid training. Mm. You know, what is the point of first aid training if you are arming people with almost guaranteed lethal weapons? Do you know what I mean? It it doesn't speak. So it's like you have this commitment that we are going to change. We are going to address the systemic issues. Mm -hmm. But actually, there is no firm commitment in practice to doing that. And some of them seem to be basics that we don't quite need a panel for. You'd imagine (laughs) that we could, you know, in terms of things of allowing, you know, allowing paramedics onto the scene after a... After a crime, yeah, to just have that injured, standard process, well, yeah. yeah, which sort of is, but you know, so some of these different things are often already there anyway. It's like we're investigating them more again. It just needs, to, it's it's sort of frustrating. But in a way, it also speaks to the to larger society. You know, mm. we mm. have such a disdain for the poor, poor black lives. It's it, it's like it doesn't matter. You know, they can continue dying in almost these eleven years. You know, we'll look into it later. Um, we can continue going on with this while we're investigating. It doesn't matter that lives are being lost. I think you guys saw recently the protest that was going on. Can't remember the place, but it was in Limpopo mm. where they had barricaded. Or something like that. Yes. And people were shot there again. Do you know? It's like, how many times does it have to happen? Before mm. anything is actually done. I think that's a key thing. It's not just 11 years. It's 11 years where this, there's still protests being policed with these weapons mm. and that the the rules and policies that have been found lacking are still being used. Do you know what I mean? Until that things are done, we are still using and implementing those things. Anyway, If you're just tuning in, it's the Daily Mavic Show on Cliff Central. We're talking to Koketsa from Amandla.mobi about their work and activism in general and also uh, around and around Marikana. Koketsa, I want to ask you about something. So... Um, there was a day where I, I spent sort of running around to Pretoria and Joburg with your colleague, uh, Paul Mason, where we were taking pictures of this, you know, sort of a Mandla, um, and Maracana sign, right? And so on that sign, and it got onto the front cover of the star and the, the picture, one of the pictures, um, from the staff photographer of the union buildings, it said, send messages of, su- of support to the Maracana widows to this number. I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about that campaign and perhaps some of the messages and things that might have come through or if, if it was well, 
uh, received? You've got a lot of messages that went to these these widows. Yeah, it was. So the idea with that was also just to remind people that there are real people who are affected by this. And also to say to the families that actually you're not alone. There are thousands, many South Africans who are standing with you. You know, we're standing in solidarity. We're just not going to let Marikana die because justice for you is essentially justice for us. You are us, you know. And um, the messages were well received. They actually, we received more messages even beyond the 16th. So what we handed over the commemoration in Marikana that day was not the complete messages. We'll be sending the rest of them via the lawyers of representing the families. Um, We had thousands of responses, some of the most, yeah, some of the most deeply, deeply moving, some deeply moving things. People shared about um, losing their own loved ones in protest action. People shared their own circumstances. It was, yeah, they were just very moving. And how was it received as you handed it over? I think at Marikana, the mood was, yeah, it was it was very heavy, you know. And, yeah, it was received, but... You know, it's it's one of those things again. It's not the best the best of circumstances. Absolutely. You know, this 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 is heavy, and this continues dragging on. And the idea that it could even drag on for so many more years, where's the justice in that? This is almost additional trauma. People are so traumatized, having lost loved ones, having lost breadwinners, having lost so much, and yet we keep on saying more, more. We want more, more trauma. Yeah. And I hear you. I mean, one when we had, we had some people on the show a few, a few weeks ago, and we we're talking about some of the, sort of, options now for the for the families of some of the the fallen miners, and one of the things they're pursuing is the civil civil claims and pursuing that. I know, Greg, you've done some some working and some writing on on that angle. What could you just give us an update of of what's happening with that? Mm, yeah, so basically, I think it's sort of about three hundred and twenty dependents of thirty seven mine workers killed during that week. Um, lodging civil claims that's in one suit. Uh, in a separate suit, there's, I think it's 275 injured and arrested mine workers. Um, have also lodged a suit for, for civil claims. While the families, the lawyers for the, for the families of those who've died haven't mentioned the sort of figures they're looking for in terms of settlement, or in terms of a uh, compensation. But the injured and arrested mine workers have averaged it out to about 3 million rand per person. Okay. So now the key thing is that, you know, these families have been waiting. I guess they've been looking for justice for a number of years. And the sense that I have, um, is from, from their lawyers and speaking to them is that they don't feel that they've seen any justice and they even find it hard to believe in that they will ever sort of see any justice served for what's happened in Marikana. Um, so I think they're a little bit, um, concerned going into another legal legal sort of battle but the key hope is i think for both groups for both both litigants is that they would much prefer the state to settle this matter out of court because otherwise it could just drag on for more and more years mm. and i think most people just want it to be over and done with you know they would they do want some sort of compensation for their you know for multiple things the trauma the loss of a breadwinner you know the 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 loss of a you know father brother son and and that sort of um emotional um i don't know what, what would you call that sort of like like being able to take someone on emotional support mm. from from them so so they sort of want it to be over and what's 
what's happening now is the state hasn't yet opposed either um, either of those claims in court, um, which could suggest that they're they're looking at this option of an out of court settlement because it may even make sense for the state too because this will be years and years of litigation if yeah. if they go ahead debating this in court. So I think the state will number one and the minister of police in particular will number one like to avoid continued embarrassment and 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 it'll be likely that they will after this thing's resolved if it does go through court it's likely that they will have to pay out a settlement or, or compensation because the the standard of justification um, of negligence is much lower than in a criminal case or, or or something like what we saw at the commission you know if 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 these parties can show that the police were even slightly negligent in the in their duties um serving for the SAPS then they'll have to pay compensation and what we've seen in the Americana commission was yes there is many many points where where the police acted neg- negligently and i hear you i mean it's you know i don't know how you put a price on the on the loss that people have gone through but you know i guess it's something and i think even for us, I think generally as a people, I mean, I look at myself, apart from being a part of a Mandela.mobi, being a human being, being a black person, it's, it's, it's incomprehensible that this can be so dragged on, that we still cannot find justice because, yeah, it's justice more broadly for all of us. We know who's protesting. We know the faces. We know what, which communities these people are coming from. You know, it's us. And I hear you. And I think that's, you know, that's why the work you're doing is so important. You can channel, at least attempt to channel our grief and our anger uh, and our outrage into some, some actionable steps, you know, just to avoid the rest of us just maybe getting despondent and being, you know, what can I do about it anyway? So I suppose the big question is, how do we, be, how do we become a part of what you're doing? How do we support the campaigns and um, how do we support Amandla? So um, you can go to our website, www.amandla.mobi, and there you'll get all the details for our various platforms, um, the number for the WhatsApp. There's a variety of channels that you can use, and you can also join straight up on the website. Okay. Actually, one question that I forgot to ask earlier is just, has there been any backlash as you try to get the, the, the R5s sort of being removed from being used in crowd control from maybe gun manufacturers or gun lobbyists or anything like that? Is anybody like, hey, don't don't mess with our... Our income streams. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, there was there was a lot of backlash, mm. a backlash, especially um, before we sent the email where we had screen grabbed some of the stuff. Um, we would get things like "Stop trying to disarm my police" and just yeah, just a lot of vulgar, very deeply vulgar things, you know. Um, Stop trying to disarm my police. So is that from just regular citizens feeling like you're making the police less? People, your gun lobby people okay. in particular okay. were very active on this. And then there were people who just, you know, it's again the stuff about the disdain for the poor that why are they protesting in the first place? You know, if if people are behaving like animals, they should be killed. And yeah, so yeah, we did get a lot of that. I think though, after we had screen grabbed a lot of the comments that they made, and we sent an email out with that stuff. And there's been a sort of a cool down ever since. Actually, a huge, 
huge cool down. And it was also very great to see that Amandla.mobi members were coming in, you know, having jumping in on the conversation and actually explaining why this is a problem, Jeez. why it's not about disarming the police and why crowd control, responding to a crowd control situation is not the same as responding to an armed robbery or heist. Mm. Mm. I mean, that's so great that the members actually jumped in and sort of critically engaged with, the, with what was coming out. I suppose that's so easy to descend into insults, especially if somebody is being quite aggressive and vulgar. And I think it's it's one of the yeah, it's one of the things that gets lost. It's again the stuff about people who are affected, you know, who are actually engaged, who are engaged and very tuned in on these things, you know, um, finding a way to allow, create the space in which people are able to, yeah. Okay, fantastic. Okay, so thank you so much for making time to chat with us. Please keep up the great work and if you get any insults again from these crazy people, please come on here so we can name and shame them. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for having me. Okay, fantastic. That was Koketsu Moeti from Amandla.mobi. Please, please check out their websites and, and make sure to support them as much as we can. We're just going to go into a short break and we'll be right back. The Daily Maverick Show on cliffcentral.com. You're back with us on the Daily Mavic show on Cliff Central. Just after the halfway mark of our show, had a great conversation with Koketsu Moeti from Amandla.mobi, really just about activism and how do we take some of the outrage and grief, resentment, and some of those emotions that we feel as, as South Africans trying to be active citizens and how do we channel that into into something that can hopefully change policy and affect some of the decisions that our leaders make. And and now we're sort of changing tact. I'm going to talk a bit about initiation schools. Um, so it's something that we hear about sort of every year. There's a season when it comes up, and we we often hear a lot of tragic stories of of of, of illegal schools and and sometimes some young people dying. And recently we had a we had a kidnapping. Now, Greg, I wanted to ask you, what happened, and and, and at what point are people getting kidnapped to be part of the initiation process? Mm, so on on the show, I think a month or two ago during the winter initiation season, mm, we spoke some mm. of the key stakeholders. Uh, on their, on the record of fatalities and injuries this year, which was down from last year, you okay. know, about, I think from 44 last year's winter season to 33 this year. And so, but sort of since then, I guess there was this sort of story I did last week that I found interesting, particularly on, I guess, illegal schools, but it's also, I guess what this story shows is the murkiness and, um, Com- the complex nature of trying mm. to sort out sort of some of these issues, right? I mean, yeah, so, one of these things you've mentioned before is this, that's the whole thing of legality is not as black and white as it right. can be. That's right. Mm. So this one to me clearly yeah. seems to be illegal, but I'll explain the story. Yeah. So, uh, it was in the newspapers and things back in, I think it was July. There were 23 boys, um, sort of young boys. I can't remember. I think their age was something like from 14 to 18 or 19 or something like that. Um, and they were kidnapped from Orange Farm. Some of them were playing soccer. Some of them were just sort of walking around and some, some other sort of guys actually similar ages, sort of young thug type guys. Um, sort of literally like kidnapped them off the streets, took them off the streets and, and took them into this, Bushy sort of hill area, um, in Orange Farm, actually down one of the main, main roads of Orange Farm. And so from there, they were sort of made to crouch and cover their heads until later that evening. And then they got on the last train that could take them to, to Meadowlands Soweto. And there, they, these 23 boys were taken to a, um, mine dump where, where sort of an informal, maybe supposed illegal, um, initiation school had been set up. 
And none of the so what generally happens is for for boys who are going to initiation schools, their parents write letters letters of consent or they okay. sign something. You know, um, there doesn't always happen, but they're supposed to have a medical pre screening to look for you know look for any sort of you know, complications that or before you actually go into yeah that the organisers need to know about or and just just to make sure that they're safe mm. um, when they're going on the schools. The traditional surgeon needs to. Um, should be experienced and also have gone through a, a sort of training program, like a, like a short workshop thing to, to ensure that the circumcision mm. practice, practice is, is completed safely. This, it seems with these guys, it was just the complete, you know, complete opposite. Like there was yeah. just, they just, so they took these boys there and it seemed like the organizers and I guess I, I, the, the parents I spoke to who told me their story, we'll just call them thugs and sotsies, you know, um, they, they were, you know, sort of abusive to the boys when they were there. They'd beat them with sandbox, like whip them until they bled. They would burn their cigarettes on them. One boy supposedly fell on a fire. Um, they weren't eating, most of them. You know, they were dehydrated and, and suffering from malnutrition. And and supposedly the school organizers were sniffing glue and smoking dacha and on, on um, uh, drinking a lot of alcohol and stuff like that too. So anyway, eventually, so that, that story all came out in the news and everything like that. And it seemed like a shocking story, but, you know, fantastic news comes out. Uh, these boys have been found and rescued after community members and police, uh, sort of, you know, sort of cottoned on to what was actually going mm, there. No, they, like your, these are those boys, yeah, right? Yeah. Okay. There was a request for ransom or something. Along yeah, there the was. Way. So, so during that process as yeah. well, some of these, some of these, um, the organizers came to some of the parents' houses mm. demanding, I think it was 900, 950 rands to, to, to get their boys back. And, you know, some of the parents didn't have that much money, you know, they gave them what they could, but that didn't get their boys back. So they also gave them groceries, you know, sort of like our maize meal and your basics and potatoes, stuff like that. Just so, so, cause they said, you know, if you don't give us any groceries, we won't feed your children. So they gave it to that. And it seemed what what the parents said is when, when they saw their boys, clearly that food didn't go to them because they were in hospital. They were emaciated. They were starving. I remember one parent crying as she told me that her son was eating like a pig when she first saw him in. Um, in, in hospital, I think it was the Jabalani Hospital in in Soweto, and so yeah, you know, so these boys have been treated very badly. Some of them have been abused, mm. assaulted. Uh, first of all, they've been kidnapped. So you know, it's, it's fucked up on like eighteen different yeah, levels. Yeah, what, what time period was this? How long were they held? Three weeks. For three weeks. Three weeks. Okay. Yeah, and so the mother who particularly told that story yeah. of of people coming to her house, they came two weeks after. Okay. Uh, after um, her boy was taken, so the. The boys are found, you know, they're taken to a, you know, to get medical treatment and they're, and the parents were told that they're also going to be taken to a so-called, uh, a so-called place of safety, um, set up for just this purpose to rescue boys and take them mm. there while they recover mm. and while the, the perpetrators of these acts get arrested so they can be withdrawn from the community. Next thing these parents know is a few days later, they're called by some of the, the police officers in Orange Farm just to say that, no, your boys are here outside the police station in Orange Farm. Can you come pick them up? And these parents are thinking, like, what the hell? They told us our, our boys are going to be like taken care of and watched and, and and treated until until it's definitely safe for them to come back to Orange Farm. And and they claim that um that the Houten government, that certain traditional leader um, groups and things like mm-hmm. that haven't, and and the police and that the community policing forum have not honoured their um promises to take care of these boys, keep them safe and ensure the perpetrators are arrested. So only one only one person was um a young, a young guy, supposedly his parents told me his name was .com, he's, you know, his alias or something. So this guy was arrested but then they later released him because Jeez. there wasn't sufficient evidence. There was there was a number of other 
uh, young men who, who kidnapped these boys who are supposedly still in the community who haven't been arrested face no charges. And so this is the, the situation that these boys and their families are now in. These, these, some, I think there's, of those 23, many of those boys didn't go back to their, you know, their like high school, um, for a number of weeks. Mm. Two of them supposedly have never gone back. One of the parents um, that I interviewed, she sent her boy near to, to live near Pretoria because these these thugs keep on coming around to their house oh, or they wait outside the school gates. Supposedly one or two of them are even in the same school. They go to school with them and they say things like, you know, either give us this money or come back. We're, we're doing the initiation school again. Uh, come back or we'll chop off your son's head or, cho- or we'll kill this boy. And they, they come to you and like, you know, if you're walking home. Um, it's, it's your choice. We can either beat you or we can kill you. You're going to give us what we want. And so these constant sort of threats have been going on. And these parents are extremely upset that neither the police nor the community policing forum and none of the government agencies or anything like that have been able to seemingly do anything about it. And, and so these parents are just pulling their hair out and it's a really, really sad situation. I was speaking to them. Some of them were really teary and crying. And, um, and so I think now they're just, they seem to be in this position where they just don't know what to do. They're both parents and children are being threatened. You can't you can't be around your child all the time to protect them, you know, mm. from from these threats and things like that. Um, and then because some of these parents are now speaking out, for example, they spoke to me in the media. They're they're causing a bit of a fuss in the community, mm. trying to demand that that the promises made actually yes, take place, so yeah. so that their kids and themselves are safe. And now because these parents are speaking out, the parents feel threatened from other community leaders. Jesus. You know, your sort of community groups and they're saying political groups and things like that, but they didn't want to name names. But um who you know, who who have an interest in not being embarrassed and not looking bad and not, you know, not having the media come and find out all this sort of stuff what's going on. Mm-hmm. And and um so now the parents are also facing these sort of the parents don't feel safe not only from these thugs the you know they're threatening um, the families and the bo- the boy young boys, but from other community leaders who are telling them you talk too much why are you talking so much you know how like what, why do you, why are you trying to tell us our, our jobs and what we should do yeah you got your sons back you know like mm. leave it alone so it just sort of seems this terrible situation that's quite complex and I think it really throws another light at the community level on mm. I- on issues of trying to. You know, sort of combat illegal initiation schools and, and things like that. And, and just different, how, how different community dynamics in terms of trying to improve some of these issues. I mean, yeah, cause you talked about things like consent forms and pre-screening of boys for medical conditions and training of surgeons. When you say all that in theory, it sounds mm. great. It sounds like, okay, this sounds like it's working. But I think when you, when you bring in the community level issues and, um, the legality and illegality and cultural things at play, I think it becomes quite murky, as you've mentioned. There's a, there's a lot of complexities involved. And for me, it was just a reminder of, although there are clear steps being taken to improve, um, the safety, uh, of initiates. Absolutely. Uh, there are also other broader challenges, uh, more, more societally based. Okay. I mean, it's, I mean, it's tragic. I'm, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's something we'll definitely keep, keep watching and really hope we can shed some light on. On the plight of these families now and hopefully get some, some attention and some action around it. Mm, yeah, I'll keep following it because I think it's important that these families, you know, we, we get into some sort of safe situation. I mean, we hope so. All right. Now quickly just to change onto something a bit less local and more national is the ash, uh, annual national assessments. And there's been some, there's been some drama about that. 
Um, so it's supposed to be a numeracy and literacy <laughs> test that, that goes from grade one to nine. And lately there's been a whole thing about it and the teachers unions boycotting and, and dude, what's, what's going on with this? No, nothing. No, it's okay. Before, before the show, Fatima and I were just debating between each other who, who would talk about this issue. And, and while Fatima, I know he's really excited to, to talk about it because she was recently out of school herself. Um, the thing is, Kingsley, that, so the annual national assessments were introduced in 2011. Um, President Zuma announced that in his State of the Nation address later, later that year. I think it was, can't remember which grades they introduced, but effectively it's grades one to six and grade nine. Um, a test on, you know, literacy and numeracy and they, they differ a little bit to each, mm-hmm. each sort of grade. And, um, and the idea of this thing was it gives us, I guess, a bit of a litmus test to, to see where, you know, where our students are at in terms of just the very basics and how, how we can focus areas on improving that, which schools, which areas, which, yeah, which sort of questions from year to year, um, can we, can we look at to try and really help improve, you know, the, the, the terrible standard of our education. And that's one thing that these tests have shown. While the data has been a bit up and down, strangely, but it, it's, they're generally pretty bad, especially at sort of grade nine level. Grade nine level in terms of literacy and numeracy, mm. particularly mm. uh, numeracy, ma- the mathematics side of things, they're, yeah, they're pretty horrible. But, so the issue is the unions have always taken beef with this thing. They're just not happy to have, have to be forced to have to, have to bring in these tests every single year. They say they're being pressured and labeled, you know, so your class or whatever, your school sucks. They're worried they're going to get fired or worried that, you know, the department's going to come down on them really hard. Mm. They're also saying it takes up too much time from actually teaching the normal curriculum. So instead of teaching your normal curriculum and even sciences, because sciences aren't in this thing, and all your normal maths classes and stuff like mm. that. Supposedly, what, what some people say the worry is that teachers are just rope learning their kids to do this. Yeah, they start you know, teaching to this. Just that. So that they can do well. Mm. And, and so they look good. The kids can't do anything else. Mm. But, it's, but it's also clear to remember, yeah. it's important to remember that this isn't like a matric. It doesn't get you from one year to the next. Mm, mm, mm. It's just a, a national standardized test to, to see where we're at. But yeah, there's, there's a lot of sort the unions want. They're, they're saying they're not going to do it this year. They're, the department's saying, no, you are going to do it this year. <laughs> so we really, it's like both, both are standing extremely firm and yeah. it's actually sort of this union department issues of, of, you know, come, come to loggerheads again. But I think there's actually quite a bit of support for what the unions unions are saying. The unions want this thing to be fixed first and then maybe run every two or three years. Okay. And interestingly, you know, you, I think the, the knee-jerk reaction for us is to say, ah, you know, these damn unions, these damn unions are just, you know, just ruining our education yeah. system. But they do have a lot of support from unlikely quarters, you know, academics and things in terms of what they're after. Yeah, I imagine with things like this, you know, one can go to best practice around the world and see how is this being done. I remember talking to uh, African School for for Excellence, you Nonclatla know, Masina, from there a couple of weeks ago, um, and she talked a bit about just the issue of trying to teach to the test. I remember their thing was mm. really if you teach the problem solving, if you if you teach critical thinking, and that's sort of a way to circumvent. You know, you, you teach to one test and then you stop, and then now you switch, you teach to matric, and and feeling like a student is losing out on learning one kind of test than another mm. test, because ideally you're not supposed to be learning for the test. That's right. Ideally, it's just supposed to be where you're at, but that yeah, I don't know if a teacher in a school would like that approach. It's tricky, man, and and it's for me like I'm biased towards wanting performance management. If you can have a great test mm. that helps us, you know, 
managed for high performance for all teachers around the country. That's really something I want to happen. But the questions yeah. are, the questions are, is are the results reliable? And there's been a lot of questions about that. So there was, there was something looking at, I think, at last year's 2013's results. Mm, mm. And uh, I think it was a, a education economist researcher looking into that and just sort of saying that it, the jumps from, from one year to the next were just way too high. And also in terms of performance management, is it worth having a test just with one year's can you implement changes in one year's time in terms of can we – so with each one year, can we sort of improve the system or must we give it – you know, get these results, have two years, something like that. Or or other people or some other people suggesting maybe we should just always test grade threes, sixes, and nines, mm. like just at key points in their lives rather than you – know. Okay. I mean, if, if, the, if the questions are about technicalities, then I, I, know I dare say it's, it'll get there. It's just a matter of how it's done mm. as opposed to no, somebody saying that, no, we will never, ever do this, which is a different argument point. Kingsley, now you're just killing the news saying, oh, yeah, we'll get there. It'll work <laughs> itself out. We're supposed to be hyping this thing up. Okay, <laughs> quickly to change tact, we'll be talking to Mohammed Desai from BDSA. Mohammed, are you on the line with us? Yeah. Um, sorry, can you hear a bit faint? Hello? Yeah, I, it, it's also bad on my line. Should I give you another number to call me on? Okay, perfect. Now, we actually just need to do this pretty quickly. Now, Mohammed, I'm really curious about the campaign that you're running to, um, to boycott of people to boycott the Pharrell concert. Could you tell us a bit about that? Well, there's your answer. Anyway, on that but really short story, Pharrell is in town this week, <laughs> and some people are saying we must boycott. People are saying you must boycott, right? That Pharrell performs in Israel. Pharrell is... Does in, he perform in Israel? I'm pretty sure. I'll find it for you. I think he performed in Israel. Okay. And that he's brought here by Woolies. So there's a whole thing that we must all not go and support. I just want to ask, so of, of the three at this, still at this table, Demon Kings, you know, so I'm the only one not going to, you know, to the Pharrell concert. Mm-hmm. And it's not because of any ethical stands. I just mm. didn't get tickets. I'm not the biggest fan. Mm. But Kingsley, Fatima, you're both going to the Pharrell concert. And maybe Fatima, can you tell us, did this at all, you know, this whole sort of thing to push, um, push, like, like fight against Woolworths and protest against that? Did that, did you weigh that up at all when you were making your decision? Well, I think for me, I've known about the campaign, uh, before. The concert was announced, and I've never been pulled in by the actual campaign on its own. Uh, so, so this is going to get no chance. Yeah, I just I find it hard to think that by not buying Willie's products, anything is really going to happen. Mm-hmm. So I'm still going to go to the concert. See, we there dancing. So I'm happy. Yeah. Kingsley, I mean, yeah, I've just pulled it up. It says that. It was widely advertised that he would perform in Israel in September before. So I think he just performed there now. Anyway, that's not the point. For me, I think it's just a really big stretch, man. We've got issues in Israel and Palestine, and then I don't know. It's very hard for me to bring that home to if I don't see Pharrell. <laughs> I am contributing exactly. to, to peace in the world, and I, I don't understand. Okay. Okay. There you had it. So that's for all it. of you going to Pharrell, please just check your conscience and just make sure that you're doing the right thing. I think this is a personal choice for all of us. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have. We'll catch you next week with more pertinent questions about which concerts to attend, which concerts to not attend, and you know where to find that kind of information. Do we have a Pharrell track to play? I think we've got a Pharrell track. Give me two seconds and we'll play that. Thank you so much for tuning into the Daily Mavic Show on Cliff Central. Thank you so much for always tuning in. Please, please share the podcast as usual. And subscribe. Download the app, subscribe on iTunes, and we really appreciate your support. Thank you so much and keep listening. The Daily Maverick Show on cliffcentral.com.